What do you do when you're faced with an insurmountable burden? To whom do you turn for advice or guidance? Does faith get you through it? Can your friends or family make a difference? When you're lying in bed in the dark hours before dawn, unable to sleep, almost unable to breathe as the weight of this burden presses down on you, is there anyone who can truly make a difference? You're alone with your thoughts, isolated within your own psyche as you struggle to make the most difficult decision of your life. Does anyone else really matter? Because regardless of what he or she may offer, well-intentioned suggestions, prayers, and understanding, you know they cannot possibly comprehend what you're facing. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. This episode is part two of Lone Survivor, the murder of 16-year-old Kevin Haynes and his parents, Lisa and Tom Haynes, from Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Kevin's 20-year-old sister, Maggie, was the lone survivor of a brutal attack on the Haynes family in May 2007. If you haven't yet listened to part one, please do so. Then come back and rejoin us here in part two. On Wednesday, June 13, 2007, the day after Alec Kreider's confidential confession to his therapist and his parents, the Lebanon County Detectives Bureau received an anonymous call from Philhaven Behavioral Facility. The caller told Detective James Grumbine that a patient in their facility confessed to killing the Haynes family. This patient also said he had fantasies about killing his own family. To whom was this anonymous caller referring? Well, we know exactly whom it was. Alec Kreider. Rather than pick up the phone and call Mannheim police, Detective Grumbine drove to Mannheim, Pennsylvania, and met with Assistant District Attorney Craig Stedman and Investigator Alan Lead. The team in Mannheim were surprised and a bit dubious about this information. Police interviewed Alec Kreider twice since the Haynes murders. Kevin Haynes was Alec's best friend. Alec was cooperative, and at no time did police notice any defensive wounds on Alec. That's something they felt assured the murderer would have had, considering how hard Kevin Haynes fought off his attacker. But, like all other tips, it had to be investigated. Here's my issue with this anonymous caller. He or she broke the law. Alec Kreider's confession was confidential. His psychiatrist was legally bound not to reveal the confession to anyone. So was the hospital administrator. Alec's parents weren't bound by the same principles, although other than the attorney they hired to represent their son, they hadn't really told anyone else yet. Someone at Philhaven, whether it was Alec Kreider's therapist, the hospital administrator, or someone who perhaps overheard them talking, broke the laws of confidentiality when they called the Lebanon County PA Detective's Office. Now, that didn't make Alec Kreider any less guilty. It didn't make his crimes any less horrific. Yet that information never should have left Philhaven the way it did. Late that night on June 13th, two Pennsylvania State Police officers took a trip out to Philhaven and asked to meet with the manager on duty. 
Like any visitor at Philhaven and other medical facilities, they had to sign a visitor's log. I don't know about you, but when I'm at the doctor's office, my eyes innocently scan the sign-in sheet. I can't help it. And the same was true for the police visiting Philhaven. As they scanned the visitor's log, they noticed a very familiar name, Jack Kenneth, the criminal defense attorney Tom Kreider hired to represent his son, Alec. Kenneth's name was well known to law enforcement. He had previously worked in the district attorney's office. Since leaving the DA's team, Kenneth was considered one of the best criminal defense attorneys in Lancaster County. The state police guessed what this meant, and their guess was correct. When the facility manager arrived, he explained he couldn't share any information about patients, which the police expected. Phil Haven's CEO, who arrived a short time later, said the same thing and determined the best course of action was to have the facility's legal counsel contact the district attorney's office in the morning. Jack Keneff represented Alec Kreider, but he couldn't represent Alec's parents, Tim Kreider and Angela Parsons, and they needed legal representation too. They received Alec's confession. There would most assuredly be questions about what they did and didn't know leading up to and after the murders. Alec's parents retained a family friend who also happened to be a former member of the district attorney's office, attorney Robert Beyer. Before Beyer and Kenneth could finalize the best strategy to support Alec Kreider and coordinate turning him over to the police, Mannheim District Attorney Craig Stedman got the jump and called Jack Kenneth. Stedman didn't say much other than he wanted to talk to Alec Kreider, and he added, you know why. Three little words that carried the weight of the world in them. Jack Kenneth said very little himself. His response was, I'll get back to you, and then he hung up. Could you imagine, before you get a chance to contact the DA, inform him that you've been retained to represent a murder suspect whose family wants to turn him over to the police, the DA calls you. That's a fuck-me situation. Kenneth and Byer met again with Alec Kreider's parents. They explained the charges the district attorney's office could file against Alec. First-degree murder, which, as crazy as this sounds, was really one of their best options. Even though it could mean life without parole, it also meant Alec's attorney could pursue a diminished capacity defense, provided Alec Kreider's mental health met the state's condition to prove diminished capacity. However, first-degree murder also meant the defendant had the intent or premeditation to perform an unlawful act that caused harm, like premeditated murder with malicious intent. Second-degree murder in Pennsylvania means murder was committed during the execution of another felony, like robbery, rape, or kidnapping. A charge of second-degree murder does not allow for a psychiatric or diminished capacity defense. Because of Alec's recent mental health assessment after being admitted to Philhaven and previous issues with anger and depression, the hope was to find a mental health expert who could prove Alec Kreider suffered from a mental illness that met the state's legal test for insanity or had diminished capacity at the time of the murders. If Alec was charged with second-degree murder, that wasn't an option. The guidelines in our state for an insanity defense are difficult. Quoting directly from the state, legally insane means at the time of the commission of the offense, the actor was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if the actor did know the quality of the act, that he did not know what he was doing was wrong. An insanity defense is not eligible in Pennsylvania for just anyone who has any mental health issue. 
it must be proven by the defense through case evidence that the defendant was insane based on the state's guidelines at the time of the crime. What does all this mean? Well, even if Jack Keneff and Robert Byer were able to convince District Attorney Stedman not to pursue a second-degree murder charge, there was no guarantee Alec Kreider would meet the state's conditions of insanity. Based on Alec's confession, he knew what he did was wrong. Yes, he said he was filled with rage while he murdered his best friend, Kevin Haynes, and Kevin's parents. And he said he was terrified over what he'd done as he fled their house. Alec was well enough within his right mind to use their bathroom and wash away the blood from his hands. He knew enough not to leave a victim alive. When he found Kevin's mother, Lisa, still breathing in her bedroom, he cut her throat. Had Alec Kreider known Maggie was home from college, he likely would have killed her too. An insanity defense was a serious long shot. But Kenneth's job was to defend his client and take whatever shots he could. Kenneth and Byer agreed Robert Byer would meet with Assistant District Attorney Craig Stedman. Stedman and Byer took advantage of the warm summer air and walked for over an hour together outside Stedman's office. Imagine being a quiet observer to that conversation. Byer said the Criders wanted to cooperate in any way possible. They discussed the terms of Alec's arrest, when and where it would occur, and Byer asked for second-degree murder to be taken off the table. Stedman was open to all of that, but before coming to any agreement, he had to talk with Maggie Haynes, which also meant telling Maggie her brother's best friend murdered her family. Maggie Haynes and her extended family met with ADA Stedman, Investigator Alan Lead, and Mannheim Police Chief Neil Harkins on June 14, 2007. Maggie and her family were rattled when they learned Alec Kreider killed Kevin, Lisa, and Thomas Haynes. She had a hard time believing the news. Alec Kreider had known Maggie's family for eight years. He'd come to her house for sleepovers and after-school video game sessions. He was a fixture in their lives. Why would Alec do something like this? No one had any answers. Stedman presented the request from the Criders about taking second-degree murder off the table. The Haynes family was reeling, not only from the realization Kevin's best friend was the murderer, but also from the pain the Criders must have been going through. They were still so deep in their own grief, yet they were able to consider Alec's family's pain. Everyone attached to this case carried themselves with such grace for one another and an immense level of empathy. It's just mind-blowing. Maggie and her extended family agreed to accommodate the request not to pursue second-degree murder charges. It was one small consolation they could make to the Kreider family. Although Alec Kreider confessed to the murders, there still was a matter of evidence. The shoes Alec wore during the murders were with him at Philhaven. Somehow, he didn't realize there was blood residue on the soles. The police had the cap he wore and dropped when he tripped in the woods after fleeing the Haynes home. But more important than Alec's clothes was finding the murder weapon. The police expected there had to be evidence in one or both of Alec's parents' houses, and they weren't the only ones. 
Tim Kreider knew his son well enough to guess what he might have done with the knife he used to kill the Haynes. Alec Kreider confessed to murdering three people on June 12, 2007. Two days later, on June 14th, Tim Kreider found the murder weapon. It was a five-inch hunting knife Tim gave Alec when he was 12. The knife originally belonged to Tim. It was given to him by his father when he was 12, and he passed it along to Alec just four years before the murders. The knife wasn't a family heirloom or anything, but it was like a rite of passage of sorts for the men in Alec's family. The knife had meaning for Tim and for Alec, but after the murders, its meaning was dark and sinister. After finding the knife, Tim Kreider called his attorney, who reported the discovery to the police. That afternoon, around 4 p.m., three police officers arrived at Tim Kreider's home to retrieve the knife and capture trace evidence from Alec's bedroom. At 7 p.m. that evening, Tim and his attorney met with Mannheim police to provide a statement about Alec's confession. The police questioned Tim for hours, while his ex-wife Angela Parsons and their other two children visited with Alec at Philhaven. Tim so wished he could have been a part of that visit. He knew it was probably the last time all of his children would be together. But he had an obligation to the Haynes family and Mannheim police. Alec's father answered questions about the confession, about Alec as a child. What was he like at home? How were his grades? What classes did he take in school? And did he have any hobbies? How did Alec behave over the past year? What about the months leading up to the murder and the days before the murder? How did he behave the day of the murder? They talked about Alec Kreider's mental health. Tim Kreider stated Alec's behavior worsened after the separation from his ex-wife. Alec increasingly had trouble controlling his anger. That's when Tim and Angela first took Alec to a psychologist whom he'd seen off and on in the years since. In the weeks prior to the murders, Alec Kreider told his father he had dark thoughts. That's what Alec called them. He never said exactly what it was he thought about. He just used that phrase multiple times. Dark thoughts. While Tim Kreider answered questions, he thought of his son Alec, whose life was forever changed. He thought of the Haynes family, of the pain and the fear they suffered at the hands of his son. He thought of Maggie Haynes, who was now an orphan. How did he get here? Christ, how did Alec get here? Tim wondered what he could have done differently when he knew his son struggled with depression and anger. Tim Kreider felt as though he'd failed as a father. The following day, Friday, June 15th, Alec's mother, Angela, answered the same questions the police asked of her ex-husband. Angela focused a great deal on Alec's mental health. Strange reactions or behaviors she'd noticed recently in Alec, where he seemed to be two different people. However, this behavior only presented itself since the murders. I can remember him mentioning a couple of things. While he was at the Haynes home, he just felt this detachment. I guess rage is the best way of putting it. I do believe I remember him saying, yeah, that he felt very detached and he felt this rage that was, you know, beyond any type of control. And that once he got back home, he felt physically ill. It was like once that whatever inner bad feeling went away, the good conscious part of him came back and he felt remorse. He felt ill to his stomach and he just felt horrible. 
All I can honestly tell you is that the young man who sat there at Philhaven on Tuesday and recounted this to me is not the young man I know. And like I said, I'm not a doctor. I'm not trying to make a clinical diagnosis, but honestly, it's almost like it's two separate persons to me. It's almost like we're seeing dual personalities. At one minute, he'll be talking about something. It'll be something very lighthearted and warm, and then he'll... It's like there's this change or something. And then I'll go on to a completely different topic, and then it'll be more detached and maybe even kind of cold. And then the look he has. He'll change again, and he's back on point. After the interview, police went to Angela Parsons' house to search Alec's bedroom. There they discovered the clothes he wore when he committed the murders. All of the articles of clothing, including his blue jacket, his black hoodie and T-shirt, tested positive for blood but they'd have to be sent to a lab to determine exactly whose blood was on his clothes. Police took fibers from almost every room in the house. That Friday night, Alec Kreider's parents, Tim and Angela, drove out to Philhaven to have dinner with their son. Over Chinese takeout, they explained they'd met with the Mannheim police, told the police about Alec's confession and what he'd done to the Haynes family. They told their son he would most likely be arrested the next day. And that's exactly what happened. Police officers spent Friday night and most of Saturday at Philhaven awaiting Alec's arrest. His attorney, Jack Kenneth, arrived Saturday afternoon and turned Alec Kreider over to the custody of Mannheim police. Alec was arraigned on Saturday, June 16th, and then held in Lancaster County Prison without bail. He was 16 years old and in prison for three counts of criminal homicide for the deaths of Kevin, Lisa, and Thomas Haynes. Mannheim police held a press conference that day to alert the public Alec Kreider was in custody and their fear of a stranger murdering people in their beds could be put to rest, although he encouraged them to continue locking their doors. Mannheim residents had a few choice words for the Kreider family when they found out two days passed between Alec's confession and the time they told police their son confessed to the murders of the Haynes family. They thought the Criders were trying to hide something from the police. They should have contacted the police immediately. Why did they wait two days? What are they covering up? What the community didn't know is from the moment Alec Kreider confessed, Tim and Angela were in a tailspin trying to determine the right course of action to care for their son while also cooperating with police. The court of public opinion is often judgmental. Sometimes it's cruel and it's filled with people who believe themselves more altruistic than their neighbors. The district attorney's office didn't see it the same way and even publicly acknowledged the efforts Alec's family took to cooperate in every way possible. In 20 years as a prosecutor, I cannot recall another case where a parent provided this level of cooperation for a crime of this magnitude. Although some parents do report criminal activity as a means of seeking treatment for their child, we're confronted with many parents who obstruct police in investigations or rationalize their child's conduct in an effort to protect their children. Mr. and Mrs. Kreider were very cooperative with police under extremely traumatic circumstances, and this community should be grateful for their courage. Regardless of Alec Kreider's confession, police still had to complete an investigation that would prove Alec's guilt through evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. A confession doesn't mean someone is guilty until they've been proven so in a court of law. A few weeks after the press conference, lab test results came back proving the blood on Alec Kreider's shoes belonged to Kevin Haynes. The knife found in Alec's dresser matched the stab wounds on the Haynes family, 
and blood on the knife belonged to Tom Haynes. Blood from the Haynes family members were also on Alec's clothing, his cap, and inside the black leather gloves Alec admitted he wore during the murders. Classmates, teachers, neighbors, so many residents of Mannheim were interviewed by the police in the weeks after Alec's arrest. They were trying to get a better sense of who Alec Kreider was and why he might have done something like this to the Haynes family. For all the crazy theories and rumors, the Nazism theory popped up again, there really never was a clear motive. None of the rumors proved out, nor did Alec Kreider ever tell anyone why he'd done it. That's maddening, that someone wipes out almost an entire family and never divulges why. There's absolutely no reason behind it. What could he possibly have hoped to gain? There were glimpses into Alec Kreider's thoughts after the murders. In July 2007, his mother Angela found a journal Alec kept while he was in Philhaven. She turned it over to her attorney, who turned it over to the Mannheim police. The police thought that meant there could be more writings, more journals, more notebooks. And before they could even secure a search warrant, Alec Kreider's father, Tim, found another journal at his home. Never once did I believe killing a man is wrong. No, no. Killing out of cold blood is wrong. Ever since I was young, I was defiant of the rules and their consequences. These feelings and sufferings have found their greatest amplifications in school, where the rules and restrictions are most numerous and strict. As these feelings increased, my want, need, to kill people increased. Alex's writings weren't more admissions of guilt, but they were chilling. It was as if he had no regard for life. He saw himself above everyone else and beyond the same laws that the rest of society holds themselves accountable to. Another clue into Alec's state of mind about the murders came from Alec himself, if a fellow inmate at Lancaster County Prison was to be believed. On August 10, 2007, Assistant District Attorney Craig Stedman received a letter from an inmate at Lancaster County Prison named George Jonas. Because Alec Kreider was a juvenile at an adult prison, he was kept apart from the other inmates. He had about an hour a day outside his cell, and he often spent it on the phone with his parents or sometimes watching TV with the guards. Alec continued his high school studies in prison with a tutor, but besides that cast of characters, he didn't interact with too many people while in jail. Occasionally during Alec's one-hour block outside his cell, he would talk with another inmate, a man named George Jonas, who resided directly above Alec's cell, one floor above him. Jonas was incarcerated for burglary, and for whatever reason, Alec Kreider seemed to take a liking to him. A few times a week, Alec would stop by Jonas's cell, either during his block time or when he was on his way to or from getting a shower. According to George Jonas, Alec shared some of his thoughts and motivation about the Haynes murders with Jonas and a neighboring inmate. Jonas wanted to share what he knew with the DA. He wasn't looking for anything in exchange. He didn't ask for a reduced sentence. He didn't ask for privileges. Truth be told, he said he thought Alec Kreider was disturbed and somebody needed to know. George Jonas provided a written statement to the ADA documenting his conversations with Alec Kreider. Jonas wanted to know why Alec confessed. Stupid kid, don't you know you'll probably go to jail? Yeah, Alec did. But he said he'd reached the point where he had to tell someone. He just couldn't keep it inside anymore. Why did you do it? That's a pretty obvious question. One that Jonas asked Alec Kreider pretty early on in their conversations. Alec said the best motive is no motive at all. Fuck, that's disturbing. 
But weren't you and that kid Kevin good friends? Yes, they were, Alec told Jonas. He said he thought their friendship made the murders more interesting. Alec also claimed to know Maggie Haynes was home, which was contrary to his previous statements. And he told Jonas if she hadn't left the house, he would have raped her before killing her. These were the ramblings of a disturbed kid who was probably also trying to impress an older, seasoned inmate. Between the insurmountable evidence of Alec Kreider's guilt, the journal entries, and now this testimony from a fellow inmate, there was no way the DA would go for third-degree murder. It was first-degree murder all the way. Before the end of 2007, Alec Kreider's attorney, Jack Keniff, had the results of the psychological evaluation. Alec did not meet the state's criteria for an insanity or diminished capacity defense. Shortly after that meeting, Alec's attorney, Jack Keniff, suffered a stroke, and sadly, he passed away in March 2008. Alec's case was taken over by a public defender, who learned soon thereafter Alec Kreider wanted to plead guilty. A guilty plea meant a few things. No trial, but also no possibility of petitioning the court to move the case to juvenile court. Alec was only 16 when he committed the murders, and although the DA charged him as an adult, which is the law in Pennsylvania, if there was a trial, Alec Kreider's attorney could fight to have the case moved. It would have been another long shot, but if Alec pled guilty, there was no shot at all of being tried as a juvenile. On June 17, 2008, Alec Kreider appeared before Judge David Ashworth at the Lancaster County Courthouse. By this time, Craig Stedman was no longer the assistant district attorney, but DA of Lancaster County. Judge Ashworth spent considerable time ascertaining Alec Kreider understood the depth and ramifications of his guilty plea. He wanted to make sure Alec knew pleading guilty waived his right to a jury trial. He also asked if Alec realized he was waiving his right to petition the court to move the case to juvenile court. The judge continued to ask Alec numerous questions, to which he replied yes to all of them. Alec was also evaluated by a psychiatrist before rendering his guilty plea to make certain he understood his decision and that he wasn't entering his plea under duress. Alec's attorney, David Blank, made an impassioned plea for leniency, which, in this case, meant serving life sentences concurrently instead of consecutively. Alec was getting life. There was no preventing that sentence. But would it be three separate life sentences or one? The main focus of Blank's argument for concurrent sentences was Alec Kreider's age. Blank remarked that a child of Alec's age when he committed the murders couldn't vote, couldn't leave school without his parents' permission, and now made a decision that most adults could never come to terms with, taking responsibility and accountability for his actions by entering a guilty plea. On behalf of the prosecution, Maggie's aunt and uncle spoke about the Haynes family, how wonderful they were, how everyone who knew them was just moved by how much love and happiness there was in their family. They talked about the level of betrayal they suffered at the hands of Alec Kreider, someone they trusted and treated as a member of their own family. They asked the judge to consider consecutive life sentences. Maggie Haynes was unable to attend the hearing. It was simply too much for her. The judge allowed her to send in a videotaped statement that was played in the courtroom. I'll share some of Maggie's statement now, and I'll post the link on Twisted Philly social media pages in case you're interested in watching the entire video. The audio of her statement is a little difficult at times, but I think it's important to share in this episode. Dear Honorable Judge Ashworth, my name is Maggie Haynes. 
and I am the daughter of the late Tom and Lisa Haynes, and the sister of the late Kevin Haynes. I would like to thank you for allowing me to submit a video statement. When my parents and brother were brutally murdered by Alec Kreider, my world was shattered. For 20 years, my parents have always been there for me. No matter what, I could not and still cannot comprehend a world without them. I miss them every moment of every day. Some days I don't know how I even manage to function, and it's really hard to wake up each morning knowing that I'm the only one left in my immediate family. Kevin is my beloved little brother. He had such a bright future ahead of him. He excelled in school and had a passion for learning. Also, he was such a caring kid, he would never even hurt a fly. The day before he passed away, we were out buying Mother's Day cards for our mom. What hurts me most is that Kevin will never have the opportunity to graduate high school, go to college, get married, start a family. I look forward to being part of Kevin's adult life and having him in mind. In murdering him, Alec Crater not only stole Kevin's future from him, but he stole part of my future from me. Even though the police have told me that there was nothing I could have done to prevent his death, I still feel a sense of guilt that I should have protected him. That is what big sisters do. I would give anything for him to be alive today instead of me. I would have done anything for Kevin. District Attorney Stedman spoke last. He began by commenting on Defense Attorney David Blank's statement, which called Alec a child. Stedman said Alec wasn't a child, but a murderer who snuck into his friend's house and slaughtered three innocent people. Alec Kreider hadn't demonstrated remorse in the years since the murders. Stedman read directly from Alec's journals, sharing Alec's dark thoughts from just a few weeks after the murders. After reading the journal entries, D.A. Stedman shared the jailhouse conversations between Alec Kreider and George Jonas including Alec's statement that if Maggie Haynes hadn't left the house, he would have raped her before he killed her. Thank God Maggie wasn't in the courtroom to hear that. Stedman ended by telling Judge Ashworth that Alec Kreider was a merciless murderer who killed just to kill. Judge Ashworth considered everyone's testimony when handing out Alec Kreider's sentence. At numerous intervals during the hearing, Alec was given the opportunity to speak on his own behalf, he was repeatedly asked if he had anything to say, and each time his answer was no. Alec had no response to any of the testimony. He never apologized. He never said, I'm sorry. He never showed any emotion or remorse. Judge Ashworth's ruling was swift. Mr. Kreider, your actions in taking the lives of Tom, Lisa, and Kevin Haynes were willful, deliberate, premeditated, and with a specific intent to kill. You have demonstrated that you are an extreme danger to this community by your violent and cowardly actions. Based upon everything I've reviewed and heard here today, I am compelled to conclude no amount of rehabilitation or any period of incarceration would mitigate that danger. These sentences shall not only be served consecutively, but the sentencing order is to include a notation from me that in the event in the future there is a possibility of clemency by some governor or future governor, I strongly object 
to the granting of any such clemency. Mr. Kreider, you will spend the rest of your life in prison. And that was it. Life in prison, three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Alec Kreider would never see the outside of a Pennsylvania prison. Shortly after sentencing, he was transferred to State Correctional Institute Camp Hill, about 50 miles west, or a little less than an hour drive from Lancaster, PA. In May 2010, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that life sentences for juvenile offenders are considered cruel and unusual punishment, except Pennsylvania ruled in the case of murder. Shortly after the state Supreme Court ruling, Alec Kreider filed a sentencing appeal. This wasn't his first appeal since being sentenced to three consecutive life terms in 2008, but he felt strongly this new Supreme Court ruling would have a different outcome than prior appeals. On December 27, 2010, Kreider's appeal was denied by the same judge who sentenced him in 2008, Lancaster County Court Judge David Ashworth. In a 37-page opinion, Judge Ashworth said proponents of juvenile resentencing argue that teenagers are less culpable for their actions because they can be immature, more susceptible to negative influences, and have an underdeveloped sense of responsibility. However, he said youthful immaturity does not begin to explain a crime of such brutality. Ashworth added, had it not been for Alec Kreider's age, these intentional horrific crimes would have made him eligible for a death sentence in Pennsylvania. There were no significant extenuating circumstances. The crime was committed by him alone. He was not bullied into this crime by peer pressure or other external influences that might diminish culpability. Regarding the death penalty, the last person put to death in this state was Gary Heidnick, the subject of Twisted Philly episode 26, Heidnick's House of Horrors. And since Governor Tom Wolf took office a few years ago, he said the death sentences won't be carried out under his administration. So Ashworth's death penalty argument was a little thin. Over the next several years, Alec Ryder continued the appeals process, and he was aided by a local elementary school teacher who believed Alec was innocent and the police didn't explore any other suspects. Apparently, this man didn't do his homework because Mannheim police and the Pennsylvania State Police explored every lead possible prior to Alec's confession. And even after his confession, they conducted a rigorous investigation based on indisputable evidence. Regardless of Judge Ashworth's opinion in December 2010, Alec Kreider's case was eligible for review and even possible resentencing because of a federal court ruling limiting life sentences for juvenile lifers. It was just a matter of time until his case came up for review. Now, in Pennsylvania, juvenile cases that had sentences of life without parole were delayed as the county waited for another ruling from the Supreme Court, and that delay was something Alec Kreider couldn't handle. I encouraged him constantly to not give up, to keep trying, to believe that things could and would get better. Some days he was hopeful, and other days he was hopeless. Unfortunately, the hopelessness proved to be too much to endure. On Friday, January 20th, 2017, Almost 10 years after the murders of Kevin, Lisa, and Thomas Haynes, Alec Kreider committed suicide in his cell at the State Correctional Institute in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. Alec was found hanging in his cell in the late afternoon, 
and pronounced dead at 4.30 p.m. at a local Camp Hill hospital. He was 25 years old. As you can imagine, Alex's suicide was devastating for his family. While they fully acknowledged their son committed atrocities on the Haynes family, he was still their son, their brother, and they loved him. He wasn't formally diagnosed as a sociopath, but Alec Kreider demonstrated traits found in antisocial personality disorder. His confession made me believe he had some level of a conscience, but if we believe what he said behind bars, that he only confessed so he could tell someone what he'd done, not out of any real sense of remorse, could he be considered a psychopath? His issues with anger and depression significantly worsened after his parents' divorce, yet thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of children from divorced families all over the world don't commit murder. There was something else going on in Alec Kreider. His parents' divorce coincided with the onset of adolescence. Hormonal changes during adolescence can be key contributing factors to mood disorders. He was prescribed antipsychotic medications while in Philhaven, but at least from what I read, which includes two books, court transcripts, probable cause affidavits, countless records and news reports, I never found anything that had a clear diagnosis either before or after Alec Kreider murdered the Haynes family. And none of this really makes a difference for Alec Kreider's family. Their son was sentenced to spend his life in prison. And he did. For Maggie Haynes, the pain and enormity of her loss will never go away. She developed post-traumatic stress disorder. She suffered debilitating nightmares and faced a future with milestones she'd never be able to celebrate with her family. Graduating college, which she did a few years after her family's murders, getting married, having a family, seeing her younger brother graduate or get married. All of that was ripped away from her by a young man who thought it would be, as he said, interesting to kill his best friend and his friend's family. While Maggie and her extended family certainly never wanted Alec Ryder to commit suicide, his death does prevent them from having to go through any resentencing hearings and fear they may have had that Alec Kreider would have been released or resentenced to a shorter prison term. Alec claimed he would have raped and killed Maggie too if she hadn't fled the house that night in 2007. The possibility of Alec being released must have caused her tremendous fear and anxiety. That fear is now over. Two books were part of my research. Refused to Drown by Tim Kreider, written with Sean Smucker. This is the story from Alec's father's point of view, his personal experiences, and those of his family, before, during, and after the murders. The other book is called A Need to Kill, Confessions of a Teen Killer by Michael Cuneo. Both books are available on Amazon in Kindle and paperback. You can read more about Tim Kreider and the work he does with kids on his website at refusetodrown.com. There isn't much information about Maggie Haynes since Alec Kreider's incarceration and subsequent suicide. And that's probably good. I'm sure her privacy is precious to her. She had a strong support system in her extended family 10 years ago, and I hope the same is true today. 
Holy shit, that was a rough one. <laughs> okay, no true crime for a few weeks. I need some lighthearted history and ghost stories. I need to let the fucks fly a little. Speaking of flying, the Philadelphia Eagles are heading to the championship game. Now, you know I'm not a huge Eagles fan, but it would be amazing for our city to see the birds in the Super Bowl. I guess we'll see what happens. Thank you to Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and almost every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com and download her music on iTunes. This week, you'll also be able to catch me as a guest host on the Book vs. Movie podcast. Margot D and I talk about Gerald's Game, the 1992 novel by Stephen King, and the Netflix film by Mike Flanagan. So be sure to follow Book vs. Movie, and I'll post that episode to the Twisted Philly social media pages. As always, thank you all so much for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters. But there's no one there, no one there. There's no one here with me. No one is here with me. No one is here with me. No